0: I am joined by Nick Hilaris of Metros Capital. Nick, welcome back to Forward Guidance. How are you doing?
1: Thanks, Jack. It's great to be here. Everything is going good here in California. We we have a sunny day, and uh, at least today, the banks are still functioning. And yes. Moving.
0: The bank turmoil is centered on your, your neck of the woods in, in California. Just to introduce you to our audience, you are a real estate investor investing primarily in multifamily real estate. So that's residential real estate but it's called, it's it's grouped in with the commercial real estate, which includes offices, warehouses, industrial stuff, stuff like that, right?
1: Exactly. Like our core business is apartments, and those are usually bucketed with commercial. But sometimes people kind of leave it, like if, if, it depends on what analysis you're reading, but they sometimes leave it out and they have a separate category for apartments. So you just have to be careful what you're looking at, but it's, it is commercial real
0: estate. And I know it moves a lot slower than, you know, the, the ups and downs of the, the stock market, but how would you say your current business, not your business, but the, the general business of apartments is, is, has been impacted by the ongoing issues in the banking system?
1: This is one of the most critical moments in, in the history of American real estate. Like real estate is emerging as sort of the, the major fault line for not only this banking crisis that we're in the middle of, but also kind of like the future of the economy. And things aren't looking that good. In, in most of, of the, the sector. Like there there was a report yesterday the US real estate is like the third most shorted sector in the market and the number one most shorted sector in the the global equity market. Something like 40% of the you know the iShares is like real estate index. That's people are scared about real estate and probably rightfully so. A lot of things could go wrong from here, which would be bad for owners of real estate and developers of real estate like myself. But what this all goes back to, it kind of goes back to QE, which you know, in previous conversations that you and I had, we've talked about the origin of quantitative easing and what was happening in the pre-COVID days and all that. But the reason why real estate is in kind of the next fault line is that the sort of stimulate stimulative Fed policy that we've been engaging in since the GFC was good for real estate in the sense that it allowed to values to climb higher and higher and higher, right? There's this global search for yield. Investors like myself are out there buying real estate assets, putting on insanely cheap leverage on top of them, trying to improve their rents, trying to raise the rents, you know, in the case of a multifamily building, but this is true really across all property types. And so we went into the COVID era with like an incredible decade of real estate performance. Like, literally, some of the transactions that I was involved in, like, were up, like, 500% or something on an absolute basis. So, you put some leverage in there, and, like, the returns are, like, looking like a crypto, uh, 2019, 2020 crypto kind of thing. Uh, so, real estate was stretched, and it was stretched because of all these macro dynamics around the search for yield. And then we went into COVID, and honestly, when COVID hit, I was like, man, this is dangerous. Like, this this is going to be, like, the craziest thing I've ever dealt with because... You had the combination of the, the pandemic and the shutdowns, but also these governments passing sort of very pro-tenant uh, laws, and I, we were we were worried at Metro's Capital. We're like, man, how many how many people are going to use those programs and just stop paying rent? Fortunately, none of that worry like came to fruition, and we emerged from COVID even better. Real estate just went higher and higher for a whole bunch of factors. You know, probably because of again the, all the stimulus that went into it fast forward to 2022 the market inflation's running out of control real estate is still doing just fine you know if you look at the first half of 2022 there's some massive transactions people sold you know people who sold in that sort of window before the fed raised 4 or 500 basis points achieved some really like you know record setting valuations and then they started raising rates and the attitude in the real estate sector was like okay we'll just wait this out. This will be a short lived rate cycle. Let's just, you know, so transactions volume went down. People like me just kind of sat on the sidelines like, okay, this is not good for the market, obviously, because there's like this inverse relationship. Um, And then we get to uh, a few weeks ago, and the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, and real estate's already kind of in trouble because rates are headed in the wrong way. And now we have this sort of not really a black swan, but this an unexpected new element that uh, emerged into the marketplace, which is making things even more uncertain.
0: Right. And so, you know, people invest in stocks. A lot of that investment is without leverage, not using borrowed money. People invest in crypto. You know, a lot of that not using borrowed money. I think I think real estate as a place where leverage, borrowing money, is because you know million dollar buildings. It's so expensive. It's it leverage is kind of inherent to it. You know, even, even a residential mortgage, you're, you're using borrowed money. Can you explain why interest rate hikes have such a large a disproportionate impact on real estate as opposed to, let's say, you know, a stock market?
1: Yeah, it's, it, it's really just a function of sort of the mathematics of, these, of, of a deal structure. Like you mentioned, almost all the real estate deals in this country are put together with a significant percentage of debt in the pre GFC days, you could get like unlimited debt. Like there was no cap uh, to the debt that you could get, but the banks and the lenders got smart after that and uh, changed things up. But, you know, in the pre COVID days, we were, we were getting loans leverage in the 70, you know, maybe if you had a really good asset, you could get like 80% leverage. And the interest that you pay on that leverage is a major cost item. I forget the numbers, but it, and it obviously depends on where interest rates are. but it's like one of the most important that basically that interest costs, real estate taxes, and insurance add up to like a huge percentage of the of the cost of owning a piece of real estate. And so when depending on how you've structured your deal, if you have a floating rate debt instrument, for example, if the Fed raises four or five hundred basis points from zero, you're talking about like a massive increase, couple hundred percent increase in your biggest line item. And so, you know, had you structured, anyone who structured deals like that in the in the, the days when interest rates were low, they they got themselves in trouble real quick because of the pace at which the Fed was increasing rates. It's like all of a sudden you could have properties. Like I have some colleagues of mine in the in the industry that finance their deals with floating rate debt and they look great, they're making, you know cash flow every month and in like 2 months they went from making a significant amount of cash flow to being completely underwater because if you're paying 2 or 300% more on that line item it just blows up the economics of the deal so it's it's very impactful and it's it's sort of like the the main risk like when you think about real estate like there's real estate risk and there's interest rate risk those are the two big ones
0: and what percentage of Uh, real estate debt is floating rates where interest rate payments go up or go down with thing. It's like, oh, it's it's LIBOR hundred or SOFR plus 200 basis points, stuff like that.
1: And I think it does vary kind of by sector. So if you look at like multifamily, for example, it looks, it's a different percentage than it would be for offices. Um, And there's
0: more or less less for multifamily.
1: Multi is probably less because you have the, um, the phenomenon of the sort of government sponsor players. So what, after the, the GFC Fannie and Freddie stayed in the business and they, they're a big player in the multifamily business. And they offer like for investors like me, like truly incredible products, like interest, uh, fixed rate interest loans, 10 years, often with like long periods of IO. And these loans are not even recourse or like, if you go to a bank, and they'll demand that you sign, it, sign for them personally.
0: So IO is interest only. So uh, unlike a mortgage, you have to, it's like a bullet bond. You pay it back at the end. So no recourse means all they can get is the building. Yeah. It's, they can't go after you if you don't. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: So the, the, the in the multi-sector, almost certainly, I, I would have to imagine there's like a healthy amount of the loans are a fixed rate because of Fannie and Freddie involvement and HUD and FHA, like there's a whole suite of these government sponsored loans that you can uh, get access to. And then even in the banks. so the, the banks were active in this space, very active. But if you were a prudent investor in the, let's say you're putting a deal together in 2022, early 2022, you can see the winds of you know, a hiking cycle. You could buy these caps so there's this whole, industri- whole industry of buying interest rate caps, even on your loan that you originated that's floating and they have a cost to them and it just makes makes the deal slightly less lucrative for you.
0: And that's an interest rate hedge. It's a swap position or what is it exactly?
1: It's exactly what it is. It's just an interest rate swap.
0: Yep. Right. So if, oh, if interest rates go up from 1% to 5%, I'm going to be screwed. So I'm going to enter into a derivatives contract so that I make money when interest rates go up. Exactly. Yeah.
1: So you pay a big upfront price, you know, depending on the size of the deal, this could be millions of dollars. If you're doing, you know, a big asset, like a hundred million or dollar, $200 million asset. And then if rates do go sideways or, or not sideways, go the wrong way, like they did recently, that position really helps where if you went in sort of unhedged, no cap with a floating rate thing, you're in trouble. And, and we've seen actually already like Pre banking crisis, we we saw some big institutional investors who had four or five hundred million dollar loans that didn't have a cap, just walk away from the the real estate. So there was this portfolio in San Francisco that was back, you know, thousands of units of multi, and one in Brooklyn, I believe, was the other one, and that was sort of I think late twenty twenty two that these foreclosures happened, which is crazy because it's really. You know, these are conservative deals. Multi is ultimately conservative, so you just don't expect that.
0: Conservative, as in low loan to value, or yeah, low loan to value, and like the odds that you you would
1: have um, people. You know, the na- the nationwide vacancy rate's like four percent or something. So, right. like,
0: because there's a shortage of housing, everyone is yeah. public office.
1: Yeah, it's not like office where, yeah, you're looking at like 20% or depending on the market, it could be even higher than that. Um, so it's, it shows you how big of an impact the interest rates have on these deals because the owners of those presumably have hundreds of millions of dollars in equity tied up in them. And they just couldn't get them, couldn't figure it out, couldn't find some way to save the deal, couldn't refinance it. And so they just walked away from it, which uh, it shows you how stressed out things were, you know, even before Silicon Valley Bank started all this, this new stuff.
0: Right. So, and so how, how bad is it out there? Would you say?
1: I think commercial real estate is in serious trouble. It's literally like on the edge and like everyone who's following the space kind of understands how serious it is. Like when you look at like office, for example, like office, there's been a bunch of high profile foreclosures, not just two. like in the multi-space where most people are, re- are hanging on, but offices are getting foreclosed on left and right. Big institutional investors like the, the owners of these two towers in LA just walked away from deals like Blackstone's walked away from some offices. I think like to, that's a, to make that decision. If you're one of those individuals who runs those funds, like you really have no choice Like to get to that moment in time. And it, it's a sign of trouble and in multi and, Retail and industrial like dynamics are kind of different for each one of those, but they have the same problem in the sense that the macro environment is is setting up to where if you have to transact, you do get a new loan like let's say you have a balloon payment loan that's coming due, you're gonna have, you're gonna have significant headwinds to figure that out, and some of those are gonna be existential. Like what we're seeing with these foreclosures, is it's literally like for the equity holders, it's an existential moment in time. And the crazy thing about where we are now, going into the the banking crisis, something like, I think I read like, there's a, the real estate loan market's like five trillion commercial real estate. Half of it is coming due in the next five years, and a huge chunk of it is coming due in the next year, like ten to twenty percent. This is happening as we speak, and there's no more like waiting around. And with a banking crisis, it's only up the ante because. If the banks were healthy, you you might get in an environment like we saw kind of late in the GFC where banks got smart after a while and said, "Okay, let's not force all these borrowers to foreclose because it's only making stuff worse for us. Let's grant some extensions. Let's do some loan modifications. Now that stuff looks to me like it's probably off the table because the the banks are suffering from so many other liquidity issues and mark to market losses on their other holdings. That I, I I see them less likely to be able to find the liquidity that you would need to make that decision.
0: So on the financing side, things look pretty grim. But if the fundamentals are good, you can withstand a lot of grim financing stuff. You know, if if you invested in multifamily real estate all across the country, you know the unemployment rate is below four percent. So people are coming in; they can they can you know pay their rent and if you're receiving that money and that money is still in excess of loan payments, everything should be fine. It might not be, you know, a a bump, bumper crop as profitable as, as some would have thought because interest expense is eating into the profit, but entities are still solvent. Where is that? Is that analysis a little too helpful?
1: I think it depends on the property type. So there's a large segment that, that that's like probably a true statement. So if you, if you looked at like a, class A or even probably class B multifamily in the United States, that looks, those sectors look pretty strong from a fundamental standpoint. Um, unless you are one of these owners who had a really bad capital structure and had like a high leveraged uh, floating rate loan with no cap, most, you know, then I think that's probably an anomaly in, in multi. So I do think that sector's okay. Office is in real trouble. I don't know how how office gets through this period without, you know, some real damage. And and, and that's why the short interest ratio, if you look at like SLG or Vornado, like these stocks, the market's already figured out. These stocks are in real trouble. And
0: uh, right. So those are uh, real estate investment trusts that are publicly traded. So marked every day, marked every second. And you go long and short and, you know, SLG has probably fallen about 80% in value. But that has price transparency. Meanwhile, there are a lot of properties that you know have never been sold or haven't been—they don't trade every year, let alone every day—and those are still so those still be marked as if it's still twenty twenty one. I don't know if
1: if the owners of them believe they they still have those values, but unless they're forced into a refinance situation or they're forced to sell for one reason or another, yeah, they're they're going to be probably okay. But the wait and see period is coming to an end. I think think that's the theme that people need to really understand is like starting around mid-year last year, the attitude among commercial real estate owners from the top, from the big players all the way down to the small was like, let's just wait this out. And well, we've been waiting and things are getting worse and worse. Office is not really recovering. And... Economy is deteriorating, so like fundamentals, even in a conservative side of the market, which is what I what I play in multifamily, like fundamentals are potentially deteriorating there. Like I'm hearing news, like for example, in Class C apartments in the American Southeast, where we, we have a portfolio kind of in and around Atlanta, there's a lot of problems. So like wow. despite, despite the headline, you know, unemployment numbers, it looks like people are really struggling financially. And, and not being able to pay rent. So like I've heard several from several large property owners that they're seeing delinquency percentages in like the 30% range. And so that's like what you saw in the great uh, financial crisis, which is pretty serious.
0: Yeah. So obviously I do not have ears or eyes on the ground, not, you know, not involved in real estate. So I'm looking at it from a bird's eye view saying unemployment rate is low. So people can afford their rent. You're saying in certain pockets, that is not at all true.
1: Yeah, it's it doesn't. It's it's definitely a problem in, in in the Atlanta and Southeast area, for example. Here in Southern California, like we own a a portfolio mostly higher end stuff, but we have some exposure across the the spectrum, and I, a lot of my friends do as well. Like not seeing that here, not seeing massive delinquencies, not seeing a bunch of late payments, not seeing a huge lineup for evictions like you see in the Southeast. So. I do think there is some geographic specificity to it. Uh, But the fact that you're seeing that, in a in a really like a dynamic go-go market, like Atlanta, which has grown by like a million people over the last decade is, is worrisome. If just thinking about the macro picture, because what it tells me is like, okay, well, why, why would somebody be struggling to make their rent payment? Well, they're probably getting less hours at their, place of employment or maybe they got fired and they're in a job transition like there's something about that sort of micro data that suggests that the macro data that we're seeing on unemployment is going to go the,
0: a different direction and,
1: and maybe that's just the beginning
0: to what degree is it that they may be making five percent more than they were in 2019 but rents have gone up a lot and you know rent- is a big percentage of of shelter as well as owner uh, owner equivalent rent, and you know, that is supposedly why people look to real estate as something that performs well in inflation, an inflation hedge, perhaps because if inflation is going up, you can raise rents.
1: Yeah, that, that's a great point. I'm gl- I'm glad you brought this up because this is something I've been thinking about a lot. Like before the banking crisis, my viewpoint on real estate was that. It was headed for a reckoning because of borrowing cost. Essentially, like the borrowing cost had moved so fast and Fed funds looked like it was on pace to go to like seven or something. Uh, not that long ago, like less than a month ago. A month ago yeah. yeah. And so seven Fed funds is like an existential threat to commercial real estate in the U.S., especially if you take in. That's why I kind of went. At length, in earlier in this discussion, to talk about the future, like what happened in the previous decade was that real estate investors like bid these assets up so high that the underlying yields on them are so low. So, like in a in a hot apartment market, for example, deals are trading at three caps. So, like on paper, like if you buy that deal with no leverage, you're going to earn three percent. And okay, it was zero interest rate. That maybe you do that. Maybe there's like a rational basis for making that decision. But man, if Fed funds is at seven, you got negative leverage. Like if you don't have interest rate or cap, you got negative leverage. And what the theory was, and the theory was sort of holding true up until just recently, I think, is that you could pass along inflation to your tenants. And in the big cities, it you know, over the last decade, it's crazy. It's like 100%, something like that is the inflation. New York where I live. Crazy. Yeah. World. Yeah. And the jurisdictions that experience that have been getting more aggressive with rent control. So, like the politicians are looking at this and saying, well, wait a minute, why are rents going up so much? And that's probably a whole other conversation. We don't want to talk about like what, why that there's a housing supply crunch in America, or maybe we do. But um, to answer this question, like, I really do think the idea that real estate is going to be saved by the ability to pass along inflation to their customers is flawed at this moment in time. And I think that's true across almost every property type. It's definitely true in office, right? Who's raising rents in office? 0% chance, right? 20% vacancy rate or higher in most markets. Like In multi, you've got this weird conundrum, which you just mentioned, which is like, despite some modest wage gains and d- despite low unemployment, people are actually just on a real basis. They're not making as much money. And multifamily rents went crazy during COVID like 20% year-on-year, year, like in the markets that I operate in, 20% year-on-year year growth. You didn't have to do anything. It just, just put a new price on it, people. The market was accepting that price. And I, I think we're, we're seeing like the natural limits of the ability for that inflation to be passed along, just because the people paying the bills don't have enough money to pay, pay that. Or in the case of California and New York, they're going to regulate it out of existence. That's what's going on right now.
0: Hey there, sorry to interrupt. Announcement. Blockworks is hosting an event called Permissionless in September. It's a crypto event. It's in Austin, Texas. We did Permissionless in 2022. It was the biggest and best DeFi event in the world. And this year, lightning will be striking twice. Historically, our ticket prices have gone up about 10 times from the day the tickets go live to the day before the event. If you're like me and bad at math, that's 900%. So it might be savvy for attendees to consider buying tickets now rather than later. If you're listening to this and you're saying... Hey, Jack, I'm not really into this whole crypto thing. I want to hear about the Fed. I want to hear about the dollar, Bretton Woods, three, four, five. I hear you. I'm not telling you to buy a ticket and the interview will resume momentarily. However, if you are into the crypto thing and permissionless is something you might want to attend, what I'm saying is there's no time like the present because tickets will go up and if history is any guide, prices will go up a ton. Anyway, the link is in the description and you can get an additional 10% off by using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. You said a 3% cap. I think that's the return to the equity investors. So that's a, because equity investors take more risk, that should be above what the real estate lenders are getting, which is, let's say 2%. And that should be above the risk rate, which is, was 0%. You were fearing it would get to 7%. I think, Nick, I have a definition of a cap rate that is very shallow. Like I could maybe give you a definition, but I know that in real estate, a shallow understanding of the cap rate such as that I have that maybe a first time homebuyer says, Oh, I know what a cap rate is. That's why, you know, there are folks like you who, who uh, are, are really successful. So what, what is a cap rate on, the, on a shallow basis and what is it actually, how is it commonly misunderstood?
1: Sure. Yeah. It's a good, interesting question. Yeah. Like people talk about cap rates and cap rates is sort of one way to value a piece of real estate. It's essentially trying to look at like, On a static basis, like compare it to like another income producing asset, like a bond. So you say, okay, this multifamily building in LA has a three cap. And what a cap rate is essentially is it takes the operating income, the net operating income. So it essentially takes like, okay, rent minus all of your ordinary expenses. What kind of number does that produce? And then it divides it by the value of the property. And that's how you get it. So it's basically... The income divided by value produces the cap rate. So if you have to pay ten million, and the building's producing three hundred thousand of uh, net operating income, it's a three cap. And cap rates are tricky because it's like any of these finance formulas is like garbage in, garbage out, right? And when you're if you're if you're going to look at buying a, a deal, for example, and you're not savvy about the games that people play with these numbers, and you can really like. Get yourself in a bad position, but the games are are common in other industries too. Like the best analogy I can give is like there there was a there was a time when Warren Buffett was like looking at buying these pipeline assets, and pipelines are kind of cool businesses in a sense because they have like real estate type dynamics where you just get paid fees for people to use your pipeline. But he he opted against buying these pipelines essentially because he discovered that they weren't. They weren't spending any money on capex, and if you only focus on the operating side of a real estate ledger, for example, or you miss the capex. And so, to really understand real estate, you have to like get into the books and say, okay, they're presenting a cap uh, an income, a net operating income of three hundred thousand, but like how much capex have they moved off onto the balance sheet, or how much capex have they avoided doing? And then you can really get an understanding of what your cash flow is because. If you get a, if you buy a building that has a bunch of needs, your 300000 could quickly go to zero, right? If you have like massive deferred maintenance or something like that.
0: So you're saying oh, if, you, if you buy a property, if someone's trying to sell you a property and it has rusty pipes and every day that goes by, the pipes gets rustier, that's not being, and they tell you it has a 7% cap, that's not being picked up.
1: Yeah, it's not being you picked gotta, up. Someone's going
0: to have to replace those pipes. Yeah.
1: And then the the other thing that happens in industry, which like, It's honestly, I don't think it's technically accounting fraud, but it feels like accounting fraud because you you can play games with it. Like, let's say you were a person who wanted to sell a building. You could move things off the income statement and put them on the balance sheet and capitalize it, right? You say, oh, okay, well, I spent $20,000 last month. I'm going to capitalize it. And unless the buyer is savvy enough to go look at those transactions, look at all the financial statements, they're going to miss that. They're going to miss that big expense item.
0: Can you break down what you mean by
1: capitalize? Let's take a standard item like a roof. If you do a roof, you're allowed under the current accounting rules to capitalize that. So if the roof roof costs you 50,000, you don't have to run that through your PL. That becomes a capital investment in the deal. It flows through a different side of the financial statements. But there's a lot of gray areas. Like, let's say you had a plumbing emergency and the plumbing emergency cost you $10,000 because you had to have emergency laborers come over. Like what, what percentage of that plumbing emergency is an operating cost versus a capital? Some of it's legitimately capital, right? You replace a bunch of pipes as a result of that plumbing emergency. That's capital. That's a legit capital expense, but some of it's not like the cleanup of the water, the yeah. emergency price of the labor. So there's all these games that people play, which makes, you know, makes real estate investing interesting because you, you kind of have to be a detective. You got to say, okay, okay, what is really going on with this building, and is it a true three cap and compare that to the market so it's a it's a tricky one there's there's no be all end all way to value these deals. you really have to look at all the different metrics to to get it right
0: right, and as you said, it's not specific to real estate I mean like oil fracking you people can re- report EBITDA and not include the amount that had to have to reinvest in drilling because every single day you're getting less oil than it used to be, so you you constantly have to Redeploy cash, so it's uh, certainly not uh, exclusive to real estate. Okay, so now we have a percentage of uh, a sense of what a cap rate is. What were cap rates, maybe you know, in 2019? What were they in 2020? And where are they now? For multi, your world, yeah,
1: yeah. Let's talk about multi because it's it'll kind of be easy for people to understand the evolution and understand the extent to which the previous decade that we've been talking about, like really changed things. So when I first started buying properties in Atlanta, it was like 2011 and cap rates were like double digit. Like it was like 10% or something. Now these were like, in a sense distressed assets. So they they were 10, you know, yielding 10% for a reason.
0: So Uh, high yield, high cap rate means low price. Yeah, exactly.
1: And In that decade leading up to COVID, they had gotten down into the like high fours in Atlanta. In LA, I think it was more like six or 7% and then got down in a class A, like a A plus neighborhood. They got down into the three and even in the beach towns, like even some two caps were trading in the beach towns leading into COVID.
0: Uh, How is that possible? So it's like, if... If it would take you 50 years to get your money back, or not not really, because it compounds, but you know, you know what I'm saying. Like two yeah. percent return on an investment every year for real estate. I mean, it's not a riskless business, right? I mean hurricane yeah. all sorts of stuff happens, right? Like how is totally. that it doesn't it doesn't
1: seem to make financial sense, but in a place like LA, like that's a common thing. And I think it's a function of there are types of investors who are motivated in a different way and like real estate. And so the motivations that you could have besides earning a decent return, because like 2% doesn't seem like a great returner, they're complicated, but they're somewhat predictable, right? Like there's a ton of people who are investing in real estate in a place like LA for tax reasons. Mm-hmm. So if you happen to be, you know, one of the people like Donald Trump who can, Qualify as a real estate professional. Like, there's no limit to the amount of deductions that you can put against your income. So, there's a ton of deals where people just buy buildings just for the sake of getting additional depreciation.
0: Forgive my ignorance, Nick, but does California have a pretty high tax rate? Why would you do that for tax reasons?
1: So, California has has gotten smart about this. This is more for the federal. Um, So, under the federal rules, like essentially, I think if you can justify that you work uh, 1,600 hours a year in real estate. There's no limit to the amount of passive losses that you can use to deduct against your income. So let's say you're a super high income earner in California and you qualify as, or any state actually, and you qualify as a real estate um, professional. You could theoretically shield your entire income from federal taxes by buying real estate and using the depreciation. So you buy a $10 million building, you depreciate it over 30 years, and that depreciation is a non-cash loss. That you get to write against an actual cash income, so it's incredibly favorable tax treatment. It's why you know, Biden was talking about you know, reforming this stuff when he became president. Like, it is very favorable to the whole of your
0: real estate. It's mm-hmm. incredible, actually. So, if you buy a property for, you know, hundred dollars, I wish those existed. Yeah, yeah <laughs> um, <funny. laughs> And then if you report ten dollars of depreciation over one year. You can with deduct that from your income, and your income is real money. And depreciation is a real economic expense, but it is not like you're paying it from your bank account.
1: That's right. Yeah, And then you, you couple that with the 1031 exchange, which is the other component of this whole scheme that is super favorable. Like imagine that same building, right? And you own it for 30 years. Let's say you own it for the entire time, under which you depreciate it. Under normal tax law, you would have to, if you sold that building you would have to recapture that depreciation as income, capital gains income. So you, you eventually the bill comes due. But they had this other little thing they got in the tax code called the 1031 exchange, which allows you to avoid that completely by just buying another piece of real estate. Oh, okay. Yeah. So the, part, the party keeps going. Yeah. This is what Trump really didn't want to have his tax returns out because he's been playing this game for his entire career.
0: And to what degree is it? Um. Oh, that's just, you know, former president Trump doing his thing. Or is it pretty much a lot of people in real estate are doing this?
1: No, th- this is the ubiquitous practice. Trump, I don't want to pick on Trump. He's not the only one. Every single person who owns real estate in America is doing the exact same thing.
0: Yeah. yeah. And that's why maybe prices are so high perhaps because you can do this.
1: Yeah. And there's, it goes back to this example. We were talking about the beach town, the two cap. You have these buyers who are not financially motivated like a normal investor. Because they're looking at and saying, okay, well, I got a tax problem. So I'm going to buy this building, even though it has no return, maybe even has a negative return. It doesn't matter. It's worth it for me because of this tax treatment. And then secondly, like the reason why in LA it's it's become a thing is because LA is actually relatively liquid. So like that Santa Monica apartment building that's at a two cap, you can basically get out of it whenever you want to. Mm-hmm. Even in like the depths of the the GFC, people were trading those and they weren't taking big losses on them because really it's, it's such premium real estate. Yeah.
0: And I imagine is the same as true of New York? Yeah, New York's a very similar and so how does the recent banking turmoil uh affect this? So the Silicon Valley Bank, uh headquartered in Silicon Valley, fell, signature bank fell a lot of other banks are have had withdrawals from their uh, uninsured accounts. How do you think that impacts the multifamily real estate business, the real estate business?
1: Yeah, I think a lot. Short answer is a lot. This is a huge moment in time. You know, I, I, I think essentially like real estate in 2023 was headed toward a reckoning. It's a, It's a, in my mind now, it's a tale of two reckonings, right? Like reckoning number one was this, capitalization reckoning that's related to you know the 7% fed fund scenario let's say none of these none of this banking stuff happens almost certainly fed funds is huge and there's a bunch of deals that have to be refinanced in the next few years and that's kind of bad news for real estate so that was what was about to happen right and we were we were seeing stuff already we're seeing foreclosures now the game has changed a little bit because it looks like the fed tightening cycle is coming to like a rapid end, right? And even like, I think Goldman Sachs put out something today or yesterday, something like that saying like, oh yeah, this banking thing is the equivalent of like hundred basis points of hiking. And they're probably right about that. And the reason they're right about it is if you look at the data, a huge percentage of the commercial real estate loan originations were happening at these sort of smaller, smaller banks, not that 250 billion is a small bank, but, smaller than the systemically important big banks if you look at the lines of, of commercial real estate loan growth separated out by big bank versus small banks like the small bank line goes like that and the big bank is basically flat The big banks are still in the game but they're just they weren't responsible for the growth and the number that i saw is like 80 percent in the last few years was being originated by these banks and so what that means is like if if the smaller banks are in an existential crisis. The leading edge of new real estate transactions just got smashed, and it's not coming back. Like I, I don't see a scenario where like all these banks all of a sudden want to put them put their deposits at risk in ill liquid real estate deals that take for you know years to pay off. So it's created a situation where liquidity now is going to come out of the market for a different reason. It was coming out of the market slowly as a result of this refinance wave because of rates. And now it just came out like all at once, boom. Like, I don't, we talk, like we bank with First Republic and they, they've they been great. And and honestly, they're the best bank that we've ever dealt with, but that, maybe that's a subject for another.
0: Not the first time I've heard that, by the way, about First Republic bank.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, They're still funding our draws, like construction loan draws are still there. They still claim they're at the table for loans even. Um, so maybe I'm too pessimistic, but I have a feeling that, you know, when, when all is said and done, the, the result of this little crisis is that real estate lending is going to get seriously hurt. Like it might go, you know, transactionally go to like near zero for a period of time as the banks figure this out. And that's bad for real estate because you need, you don't do, you know, unless you have a whole bunch of cash on the sideline. Even if you're one of the blackstones of the world, like you use re- leverage in real estate because you need to. It's the only way to make the returns, you know, interesting enough for your investors.
0: So what happens if banks stop lending and debt needs to be refinanced? I mean,
1: if you were to think about the
0: property types
1: and imagine that my hypothesis is correct, imagine that like it goes to zero. What's going to happen to every all of this? Whatever 250 billion, I think, is the number it's supposed to is coming due in the next 12 months. Man, if they don't. Do something different. It's going to look like two thousand eight nine, right? So unless the private, unless there's some like resurgence of private capital, private lending, like which exists. It's better than it has been. It, that's one of the consequences of the post GFC era is that there is this other market of like funds, essentially debt funds out there that do offer loans, but. Yeah, it's going to be bad news. You're going to see a bunch of foreclosures. Now, I hope that the, the banking regulators have like learned their lesson, which is to like, it's a bad idea to to allow a bunch of mass foreclosures
0: uh-huh. because
1: uh-huh. it just creates this negative death spiral going in the wrong direction for banks, which are levered as we, you know, everyone's reacquainting themselves with the fact that banks are levered uh, in a fractional way. And so you don't want your assets, the bank's assets, these loans on real estate to just go to zero. It only makes that equation worse. So I, I hope they figure, it out, figure out some way like, to incentivize the banks to keep lending or provide some kind of additional liquidity program that would prevent this from happening. But if it doesn't, yeah, it's going to be bad. Real estate is going to get crushed. It's already happening. I mean, there was LA, LA, for example, this is pre-Silicon Valley Bank. LA office market transaction volume was down 75% year over year and the pricing was down 40%. Just to give some context, I think commercial real estate in the GFC was down 40%. So going into the banking crisis, office in LA was already down as much as it was down in 09. And now it's looking like it's going to get worse, not better, because of you know the employment picture. Like everything is going wrong for office at the exact same time. You've got this these refinances. You've got the banks sort of out of the game. And you have fundamentals that are deteriorating so it's it's pretty bad you know, picture for them
0: yeah i'm uh soon going to be interviewing uh an investor who invests in commercial mortgage-backed securities and he's uh they're quite short uh some some sort of lower lower graded tranches and some of the like double b tranches i'm hearing are trading at like 50 cents on the dollar yeah. uh, which correlate in office but multi-family nick and you know people should know that you are not someone who, you know, has a newsletter called realestatecrash.com. Like you are an investor who benefits from being long and benefits from all this stuff going up. So, uh, you know, people should pay extra attention to you that you're have a, you know a, a somewhat bleak outlook. Yeah, I mean what what do you think happens? Yes. Yeah, like I'm I I
1: joke like I'm basically leveraged long real estate at like 99%. This is my whole portfolio. Like a lot of real estate investors, like once you start investing in real estate, you don't really invest in anything else. I've been attempting to diversify, and I've, I've done a decent job, but I'm still like way overexposed to real estate. And fortunately, I'm in a relatively conservative part of the the whole space, and I own a bunch of buildings that, you know, fortunately, we have these fixed rate debt instruments on them. So I have a few that are not like we have some developments that are that have floating rate and some. So it's not like we're without risk, but I feel okay in general about our holdings and most of the multifamily space. I feel like there's there's dynamics in housing that are that are worth exploring that I think provide a big tailwind to multi. Uh Um, Even though I do think it's we're reaching sort of the natural limit of the amount of inflation we can pass through. It doesn't mean you can't pass through any. And,
0: and uh, buying a house is now so expensive because the price of real estate exploded 2020, 2021. And it has only gone down like 5 or 6%. I think the Case Shiller came out today. I'm sure the real numbers are maybe a little worse. But housing is still expensive. And then mortgage rates have exploded higher. So even if, oh my God, rent is so expensive, it's still cheaper than to buy a house. Totally. And, and that dynamic
1: is, is already starting to get worse. Like Essentially, America has a massive supply problem for living space. And it's a function of the crash, which destroyed the single family market and a function of NIMBY anti-development policies that are not just a function of the coasts. This is happening all over the
0: country. We're not ago? in my backyard, sort of local activism. Yep.
1: Preventing development for various reasons, you know. But so on the multi-side, there's this structural tailwind essentially, that's only actually going to get worse. From the perspective of the American household, because what we just talked about was this banking crisis and the potential for liquidity to go out of the system. What that means for housing supply is pretty negative. Like, it means that new apartment deals are not going to get done because there's no financing for them. And we're already seeing that in and around L.A. L.A. had a decent pipeline of deals. Like if you look at like permit applications, it looked like, oh, we got 100,000 units or something that are going to come online in the next few years every day I get another listing from a broker of developers who are trying to sell their, these land sites that are basically ready to build and to somebody else getting out of it saying, you know what I'm I, I do not want to build it or I can't build it or I can't get financing to build it. And what's ultimately going to happen is all that stuff's just going to be, get put on hold. It's really hard to get a loan. It's really hard to make these deals pencil. Uh, and so the housing supply, long story short, in a place like L.A. or New York or San Francisco, fast forward to 2025, it's going to look worse because none of these buildings that were supposed to get built got built. Um, and so that means, again, probably more inflation potential for the rents and the, the value of the land will probably go up because there's less supply. Like it's uh, it's bad for affordability, but maybe good for the owners of the real estate like myself. hmm. And uh, that's going to happen across the whole country. It's not just a coastal thing.
0: Right. So today we got the Case-Shiller data, uh, home prices. And for seven months in a row, nationally, home prices have fallen. But that's, I think, on single residential units. What has the market been looking like for multifamily apartment buildings, your world? How much prices have gone down if if they have at all?
1: Yeah, I think it depends on the market. But Atlanta, going into the the banking crisis, I, I felt like Atlanta was probably down twenty percent from the peak. Um, so peak being like the first half of twenty twenty two, so it was already, you know, pretty big. Kind of, I guess, it matched the equity market, right? Like the equ- equity market was probably down twenty percent in that same time period, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and then obviously the numbers are different based upon what what types of properties you're talking about. So Class A, nice properties in, in desirable neighborhoods. They're probably down 10, 15. Class B is down 20. Class C could be down, you know, maybe more than that 30, 40% in some cases. LA was interesting because despite all of the fundamentals, like looking completely upside down, like we talked about, we haven't seen much price discounting yet here. Probably like more along the lines of 10% citywide. Uh, almost regardless of the type of property, class A, B, or C, like there was probably around ten percent here in LA, and I think that's a function of like liquidity. Ultimately, LA is a much more liquid market because there's all kinds of players, and where the southeast is, it's just not as many players, not as much transactions, and so it had a sharper decline. Do,
0: do you but, think prices go down more?
1: I do. I do. I think I think it ultimately like the, the story for multi depends on how severe of a recession we get. So I'm I'm firmly in the camp of like, man, it's just a matter of time before the data starts to show that we're we're going to have a recession. And maybe it won't be a nasty one. Like everyone's not everyone. There's a bunch of people who live through the last one. who think like, oh, man, here we go again. Banks are failing. Like we're about to see a massive unemployment spike and get a huge recession. And, you know, maybe maybe that happens. I don't know what the probability of that is, but I think for sure we're going to get one. It's the, the math behind all this is like inevitable. Interest rates are high. It's choking the economy. The leading edge of the economy, which was crypto and tech, just got smoked, like literally like existentially smoked in some cases. Money just disappears, gone, and jobs are gone. And now real estate, which was a bright spot, real estate was a bright spot for a decade, Had a huge go during the the COVID years because of the house price boom, which you just mentioned. But real estate companies have been firing people left and right. Like If you look at the reports, like the headlines, the mortgage companies are firing people. The big banks are firing people who work in their mortgage departments. Like We're already seeing massive job losses in that sector uh, as well. And I think it gets worse. So for multi, the question is how bad it gets is a function of how big of a recession we get in and what the unemployment picture looks like.
0: Hey there, sorry to interrupt. A lot of Forward Guidance listeners are not into crypto. If that's you, please skip ahead, get back to the interview. Some Forward Guidance listeners are into crypto, some own crypto, a smaller percentage owning lots of crypto, and a much smaller percentage work at crypto hedge funds. If you're in those latter two categories, Blockworks Research might be a good fit for you. Blockworks Research is a research and data platform that analyzes governance, tokenomics, and models of interesting crypto projects, including new protocols. There's a lot of edge that can be gained from reading these reports. You can check out a sample report at www.blockworksresearch.com research and hit the free report toggle. If that is of interest, full subscriptions can be purchased at www.blockworksresearch.com slash sign dash up. You can also get 10% off using the discount code GUIDANCE10. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. And do you think that the recent repricing of short-term interest rates, where let's say a month ago, the market thought the Fed would hike to 5.7%, 5.75%, now they think the market will only hike to 5.25%, 5.25%, or maybe they'll keep it at 5% where it is now. Do you think that on the margin will help real estate developers whose bottom lines were getting under pressure because they had all this floating rate debt, and as interest rates increased, they had to pay more and more? Yeah.
1: There's another scenario here that, it, that is positive, which is like, okay, back to my tale of two reckonings. The one reckoning was like 7% Fed funds. That's terrible for real estate. I don't really see how real estate, unless the curve was so inverted that you could like get decently priced debt because of the, just the raw fact of the yield curve inversion, unless that was something that stayed around for a period of time, real estate was going to like really struggle through that. The crazy thing about what we're seeing today is there's a scenario where like the fed like comes out of this and everything's good. Like there's no big recession and there's no big wipeout in values for commercial real estate because of this dynamic which you just mentioned. Like they just might have walked the tightrope of like let's not prevent a deflationary bust like we got in the depression or the GFC. Let's prop up these banks, but let's also not crush the market with high interest rates and let's not have a massive jobs recession. Like they might have just threaded this needle and the banking this little banking crisis was like a gift almost to the Fed because it allowed them to tighten or it allowed the market to tighten without having to do the inevitable mathematics that don't make sense for an economy as leveraged as ours. Our economy is so leveraged. You just, you can't have rates go where they went in the eighties when they tried to crush inflation with super high rates. It just the math just doesn't work. It's like pension funds get underwater. The federal government gets underwater. So maybe they'd walk this tightrope and everything will be, okay, like there's a little damage yet, like, like the equities markets down 20%, but we'll get through this. And next year at this time, like we had this conversation a year from now, we might be back in a bull market in all these assets, you know, maybe except for office, but like housing might be in a bull market, multi uh, industrial retail, everything else, uh, which could be
0: interesting. Yeah, you, you could be right. And the moderation in interest rates would be good for real estate developers. And also uh, if bank lending slows to a point that in- inflation comes down, but it doesn't have a sort of a contractionary spiral that leads to a severe recession, then yeah, who knows? Uh, Nick, the real estate industry is you know well known for its ability to kick the can down the road. If, if you have a stock, it's so at 40 and it has problems, could go to 20, could go to 10, but these buildings, you know, they very rarely transact. So you can just keep it on the balance sheet, at par and just plow through the snow. Uh, is that kind of the plan for a lot of real estate developers? I think so.
1: I think if you, unless you're one of the, in a situation where you have a bad capital structure, or if you have like capital partners who are like demanding their money back or something, then you and you have to sell. Mo- most people, investors and developers, are trying to be patient, and so far, you know, it, it seems to be that strategy seems to have worked. You know, we haven't seen mass foreclosures We're seeing that we're seeing early signs of some, but we haven't seen any real damage and outside of office, like fundamentals have deteriorated a little bit, like even in the high flyer sectors of COVID, like industrial, which we didn't talk about much, but like industrial was on this crazy bull and they've gotten hurt a little bit, but they're still like, man, they're still humming along. And I I don't think we're going to see a lot of damage uh, in that sector. Almost no matter what happens. Obviously, if we get a great depression, then there'll be damage in that sector. But yeah, what I, about, I think that's uh, what about retail. Retail's retail. Retail has been interesting because in the pre-COVID era, retail investors were real negative about retail for many reasons. And if you if you think about what happened during COVID with this explosion of online sales, I forget the number, but our economy went significantly more online in terms of the economic transactions volume, but Retail properties, especially decently located ones, have done really well in the post-COVID, if we can call what we're living in today post-COVID. I think I think it's post-COVID. Hopefully, it is post-COVID. Oh, in the, the sure. post-COVID era, retail is having a little resurgence because there's this psychological shift in the minds of consumers, where the the desire for experiential consumption is gone back to where maybe it used to be, and so retail owners are, are like, finally not the most hated asset class anymore. You know, office, office has that for now.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. Well, Nick, it's great to get your sober analysis of the real estate market. What What else is on your mind? What, what else is keeping you up at night?
1: Yeah. So, you know, one thing we didn't talk about, but which we should is the housing market. Because I think the housing market is one of these is one of the most interesting and important sort of sectors for the entire US economy and, and maybe even the global economy because it's such a big deal. And we saw something really interesting during the COVID years. So we, we saw this sort of massive psychological resurgence in the desire for home ownership and it manifested in all kinds of crazy stuff, like prices going up 40%, you know, Or 20% year on year in in places that didn't haven't experienced anything like that ever, like Boise, Idaho, for example, or other of these sort of hot COVID markets. And my hypothesis, just based on what I'm seeing here locally in LA, is that that COVID demand for housing has actually not gone away. It is still there and it is as maybe even as strong, maybe even stronger. And because what we're seeing is like reasonably priced houses in LA. They're still getting bidding war, not bidding wars, but like it's not like one person bidding. It's like fifteen to twenty people bidding.
0: So, and Nick, explain how is that still the case, given that the mortgage rate in twenty twenty one was three percent, and now it's close to seven percent.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think there was a moment of shock when the interest rates went up that high, and you see this play out in the national data, where like housing transactions went like down precipitously, right? And then after the shock set in, I think people, it's its again, it's a psychological thing. People want housing so much that they are getting over the fact that it's going to cost them more money. Just like when we go to restaurants and stuff and we realize that like the glass of wine or whatever we want to order is $20 more than we want to pay, but we do it anyways. People are making that decision. And actually the data that shows this, like there is price sensitivity still for sure because American, the American income statement for the American households is not that good and neither is the balance sheet. Uh, but every time there's a, a drop in the mortgage rate, like February, I think where there was a good print. There was like a 50 basis point drop in mortgage rates and it was up to 15% or something, like transaction volume went up. So like yeah. what that's signaling to me is the COVID era demand is still here and people are willing to pay. And if we do see a moderation in interest rates, which... Is one of the potential scenarios you and I have been talking about. Like that will come back, and that will kind of be my my hypothesis is that housing will probably be kind of the leading edge of whatever we come out of this on, because there's just so much pent-up demand, there's supply challenges that existed for at least a decade, and those are those haven't really gotten any better, they've gotten worse. If you look at the you know the trajectory, like there's less housing than there would have been. If you look back at the end of 2021, for example, a bunch of people pulled back on the project. So it's only going to get worse. So like housing could come roaring back and we might see a time of double digit increases in that Case-Shiller Index before too long.
0: Wow. So that somewhat grim outlook you have where you said, do you think prices go down more? And you said, yes, probably. You were talking about commercial real estate, office, retail, industrial and multifamily where where you know uh, you, you work a lot in. But in terms of individual homeowners housing as an asset class, you're not nearly as bearish. Yeah, not nearly.
1: Yeah, I think there are some markets, and it's pretty clear, like if you look at that segmentation of that case Schiller number and you see like the go-go COVID markets, those are already coming down, and they're coming down in some cases in the double-digit percentage. And that's because, like the COVID era is over, and this work from anywhere stuff is over too, it's not completely over but it's not going to be like it was during those two, three years. And so those markets, they didn't have the jobs to begin with. And now people are realizing like, well, maybe I can't really relocate to five hours away from my place of employment. Like I need to be closer. And so that, that's why we're seeing that. But I think on a whole that's housing is well positioned and one of the best assets classes in the whole world. Like I, I was meeting recently with a friend of mine who does um, private real estate, private equity. On behalf of large institutional, like pension type funds in Asia, and he said their number one target is American houses for rent mm-hmm. globally. That they want to put all their almost all their uh, allocation they want in America, and they want almost all of it in single family house for rent.
0: In single family house for rent, not multifamily. Multifamily is basically apartment buildings. Yeah, right. The single family, and so is single family households houses that's become more, more of an institutional right they they used institutions didn't used to really do that at all they did multifamily for a long time but that's really been adopted right is investing in yeah. single yeah. The last
1: 10 years that industry kind of came up and and now is a pretty robust industry. You know there's publicly traded companies that that do this and there's a bunch of private companies that put these portfolios together and there's like this uh growing symbiotic relationship between the publicly traded home builders and these groups. Where the you know they get they get themselves into PR trouble because they do these transactions where like they'll sell you know let's say it's an eight hundred house subdivision they'll sell like half of them to one of these rental places mm-hmm. and the politicians local politicians get mad because it's like hey isn't this supposed to be for homeowners isn't this supposed to be supportive of the American dream and there there's some there are good arguments to to think that we should think about that from a public policy standpoint but from an investor standpoint. I feel like there's going to be a wall of money coming at that space because it's, it's so well positioned from a supply demand standpoint.
0: Really? Even though a lot of the money came in at the top of prices as it always does. And now real estate prices are you know lower than they were.
1: Yeah, I think so. Because, you know, again, unless you had a really bad capital structure, like none of these firms are selling these portfolios on mass or just holding them. Uh-huh. And so, as long as they, they aren't a for seller, like they'll just hold the rentals and they'll hold them for probably a long time, maybe decades if they're smart.
0: That's what I would do. But if the private equity investors pull their money, which they want to, but there's a lot of gatings so that that could restrict them. Who knows?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think like, I don't know the inner workings of these firms, but I have to imagine that the gate, like if you, if you were on the other side of that, and you had to decide which portfolios to sell to meet the redemption. Single family rentals in America would be like the last on the list. Mm. You you might as well just get rid of some of this other stuff um, if you can. Yeah, that because that has such good upside to it.
0: Got it. Well, Nick, tell us about the newsletter that you write, Profit Plus. Is it just about real estate, or do you take a, a wider view of other issues?
1: Yeah, it's. It's about more than real estate. Yeah, it's it's it started off as a newsletter that was about the art of investing and macroeconomics and finance topics and also real estate, just because I, I happen to have like a lot of on-the-ground intel and experience in real estate. But it, it's it's always been in its gen in its intention much bigger. And something really interesting happened over the past like two or three years. I started writing these other articles, which I guess if you had to ca- categorize them, it would be like personal growth type articles or philosophy articles, life philosophy, how to how to think differently or better about just the challenges of, of living in this modern world. And those articles consistently get the most sort of positive feedback from from my readership, and they you know people trade those articles around. They they trade some of the finance ones too. So I have been writing about both all those topics, and we're. Uh, we're launching a podcast soon to accompany the, uh, the newsletter. It's going to be called The Nick Hilara Show. And we started recording episodes just, just recently, and it's been super fun. And it's going to be a continued exploration of the art of investing and economic analysis coupled with this personal growth stuff. And I'm, I'm super excited to put it out there and see what people think about it.
0: Yeah, I understand you've got uh, a lot of cool guests coming up on your show.
1: Yeah, yeah, We're like <laughs> yourself. I'm looking forward to having you on.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Uh well no, but in all seriousness, I I you're one of the first people I, I reached out to when I started thinking about recording guests. And I'll just leave a preview because I hope all of the, the audience at Forward Guidance uh comes over and, and listens to the episode. But I feel like you you've been you've been at this for quite some time now and you you sit at this super unique place where you are regularly interacting with some of the smartest minds in finance and economics in the whole world and learning their theories, learning their points of view, learning how they like break down complicated events like the Silicon Valley bank crisis or COVID or whatever. And so I know that all of that exposure has produced some super interesting opinions and thoughts in your mind. And I can't wait to unpack those.
0: Yeah. Well, me too. Uh, do I do have some interesting thoughts, but you know, none of them original. But uh, I, I think it should be good. And you know, I, I think real estate is a topic that has been criminally undercovered by by me on forward guidance. So I'm glad that you know, me and the audience we, we got to hear your your expertise ex- explain what's going on. One thing I just occurred to me, Nick, is that so when interest rates go up, someone has to bear the losses, right? If, uh, if for real estate developers. Th- if interest rates go up, they bear the losses because they have floating rate debt. If they hedge it out uh, with swaps, the, the interest rate cap, then the banks with whom they did the hedge, they have to bear those losses unless they pass it on to someone else. So someone has to hold that hot potato. You know, that's right.
1: That's right. And I, I'm not a uh, a super like savvy bank balance sheet person, but I have to believe that there's a, there are issues at all these banks. Related to their real estate portfolios. And I don't know like whether these are loans that they hold. A lot of times the banks will sell these loans to the investors and so they get them off their balance sheet. But let's talk about like the, the real estate loans that are currently held by the banks that are sitting on their balance sheet. Like, are they in the held to maturity category? Like what are the mark-to-market provisions for those? Like I don't know, but I have to believe there is a lot of damage hidden in, in those numbers.
0: Right. And it's not necessarily on the credit side. It's not, oh, people aren't paying back their loans or the property has fallen below the loan to value. So we're going to get screwed. It's just we lent money out at 3%. And now interest rates are at almost 5% or are are at 5%. And yeah, just because if if you hold mortgage backed securities, it has a price, there's an index. You get all these sorts of things. So you know, oh, it's a Ginny May at 100. Now it's at 82. Now it's at 78. But a mortgage, yeah, it's. Totally different, and obviously there are there are standards, um, and yeah, I think a lot of loans are held to maturity, but it really is the same asset. Mortgage backed securities are just bundled loans that are secured, you know, or agencies are secured uh, by, by the government. And for example, First Republic Bank, they did not have a lot of securities on their balance sheet, some um, municipal debt, but not a lot of the stuff that Silicon Valley about it, of agency mortgage backed securities that's negative convexity, a very a uh, lot of duration risk. They had mortgages. Uh, they had loans, which are really pretty similar things, but they're they're loans instead of securities. So uh, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. But again, a lot of it's on the interest rate side, not the uh not the creditor side. Yeah,
1: exactly. Like we haven't seen like the, the numbers around delinquencies. We didn't talk about that I'm so I'm glad you brought it up. Like we haven't seen like a massive uptick in like people being late on their mortgage payments across the whole space. You know, even in, in the in office and stuff like that. It's it's not even close to where it got to in the in the great financial crisis.
0: No, and I think for single-family mortgages, it's close to the lowest delinquency rates ever. That's a yes. good part of today from the Fed. Well, um, Nick, yeah. great to get you on forward guidance. Uh, as people see on on Twitter, you were at Nick Hilaris, your podcast, the Nick Hilaris Show. People should check out Metro's Capital. They can get in touch. How can people get in touch with you? More importantly, how can people subscribe to your newsletter, Profit Plus?
1: Yeah, thank you. Uh, you can get in touch. We have a website just called nickhilaris.com and you can subscribe for free there. You can also find links to that like if you just go to the, my Twitter, which is at Nick Hilarious. Um, there's a link to the website and people can subscribe and we'd love to welcome you as, as part of the, the community of readers and, and uh,
0: listeners. Definitely. Nick, thanks so much for sharing your insights and thanks everyone for watching. Thank you. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined. Also, you can get 10% off to Permissionless 2023 and Blockworks Research using code GUIDANCE10. Thanks again and be well.